Hello, welcome to our class podcast for American Writers 2, 1865 to the present. I'm Dr. Carrie Tippin, your instructor and host. Today we're discussing Hisei Yamamoto's 17 syllables and Sandra Cisneros's Americans. Let's meet the rest of the panel. Um, we are down to our last two podcasts, so I'm out of icebreaker questions. And my icebreaker question today is to tell me your name, your major, and your favorite icebreaker question. Uh, so any question that I've asked all semester that you thought was interesting or got interesting questions or answers or anything that you, someone has asked you that you thought was creative or clever or none of the above. Uh, Annalie, why don't you start? Um, my name's Annalie Rovnag. My major is psychology. And one of my favorite icebreaker questions is, um, like, where would you want to live where, where you grow up? Like, you know, like a state or something like that. Oh, okay. Where would you want to live? I want to live in the Dominican Republic. Okay, cool. How come? I don't know. I just feel like I'll be really happy there. <laughs> yeah, I think a coastal city. My Mine is San Diego. I, I would love to live in San Diego where the weather is always 75 degrees. That's where I want to be. All right, Oiden, why don't you say hello and tell us your favorite icebreaker question. Um, hello, uh, my name is Oiden and I'm majoring in political science. And my favorite icebreaker question would be probably, what's the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Oh, that's good. What is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? Um, there are many, but I think the, the most that stood out to me the most was to never look back at what you did. And in, even if you thought it was a mistake, it's still in the past. That is nice. As soon as you said that, I remembered one of my mentors when I was a very new teacher who told me to err on the side of grace. If you're going to make a mistake, make a graceful mistake, make a merciful mistake. Um, if you're going to break a policy and maybe it was a wrong thing to do, at least you were kind and compassionate on the way to making a terrible error. <laughs> Definitely. I think about that a lot. I think about that a lot. All right. Well, let's get into it. So let's start with uh, 17 syllables. And Oiden, you had the questions about this story. So I'll let you start by just giving us a, a quick overview. What's the story about? Who are the main characters? Go for it. Um, the story is about a Japanese family. Um, in the family, there's mother, there's their dad, and the only daughter they have. And her mother is uh, very passionate about the Japanese poem that she's writing, haiku. I don't know how to pronounce it, but yeah. And uh, she's very passionate about it, and which leads her family to come to distraction at the end. Yeah. Uh, and the daughter, she doesn't really understand uh, Japanese that much. But when her, when her mother tells her a poem at the beginning in Japanese, she, she knows she didn't get it at first. But then she's like, oh, yeah, that's very beautiful of you, mom. That's a very lovely poem. And um, 
her dad, her their father, her husband wasn't really happy about it, and he used to get mad and jealous. He was cold towards the family, and that's pretty much it. Yeah, I think you covered a lot of it. Annalie, do you have any other things to add to that summary, or were there any questions that you had about something that happened that you didn't that didn't make sense, or anything like that? No, no. You covered it. I think you covered it. Yeah. So this family, um, the the headnote tells us that um, that Hisei Yamamoto was uh, uh, children of Japanese immigrants, uh, like what we would call first generation immigrants in the United States. Um, and she gives two very specific words for the name of that group: Misei and Isei. And then, if you notice the pronunciation of her first name. Issei also. So it's almost like her first name is child of Japanese immigrants. Um, that that's sort of uh, the identity of her as well. And remember that we're also talking about uh, English phoneticization of what would be Japanese characters. So I think the spelling of those three different <laughs> things is maybe not reliable, but tell me what you think about that. Is there something about this story? What does it suggest about that group of kind of first generation uh, children of immigrants? Is there anything about the story that suggests they have a special experience? Um, I think they're trying to tell that first generation when they came here, uh, they had children like, like obviously, and their ch children grew up with the knowledge, without the knowledge of their culture. And that growing up, they didn't have much like friends around to talk in Japanese or their uh, parents have to talk to them in English because their schools were in English. And I think, um, to this day, uh, there's still kind of this kind of problem where kids, even though they grew up here and they speak fully English, but they look different. So they're being judged, like go back to your country. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're definitely gonna get to your question about uh, kind of just separation between parents and children. Um, but yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing to point out is that you know, you may be culturally American, like Rosie. What are some of the things that Rosie does or knows that kind of makes her culturally American or assimilated American? Annalie, can you think of anything that Rosie does or says or cares about? I mean, does she really doesn't talk in Japanese. Right. She can't really, so, yeah. Yeah. So I feel like that's one thing. There's a really beautiful line. Um, I don't know, beautiful. The truth was Rosie was lazy. English lay ready on the tongue, but Japanese had to be searched for and examined and even then put forth tentatively, probably to meet with laughter. So just the language itself is not there. And haiku especially is about like the very sensitive delicateness of language, right? It's about the syllables and, and she just can't access it. So language, that's a good one, Annalie. Oyden, can you think of anything else that kind of marks Rosie as American? I mean, I think she she understands where they talk, like they add like little Japanese words. That's where she understands it the most. Yeah, yeah. 
so understanding, I think like cultural kind of things, what to do when, um, but like American pop culture, she's kind of interested in American slang. Uh, she uses a lot. Uh, American comedy. She is a real crack up. Everybody thinks she's super funny. Uh, yeah. So there's a, I think this story kind of talks about that distinct group of people who live in kind of two worlds simultaneously. And when you live in two places simultaneously, you really don't live in either of those places, right? That between space. Um, is there anything else about Rosie's experience that kind of suggests that in-betweenness that we've talked about before, those liminal spaces? Um, I think that that's probably where she mentions artists, like American artists, but she refers to Japanese. Like she's trying to like find connection with her, with her culture, but she's still going back to what she learned. Yeah, that's good. I was thinking about her with the like the four daughters of that other family where she can really kind of fit in with them and do things with them. But then she also has Jesus as a boyfriend, kind of, sort of, <laughs> right? So she can kind of move between both of those relationships, both of those family groups. But I feel like, uh, let's go ahead and get into your question, Oiden, which was about the separation uh, between Rosie and the parents and, and what it might be caused by. So tell me why you, first of all, why, why you feel them separated? How would you describe their separation? Um, I want to put the, my question a little bit different, like how okay, go ahead. The, the disconnection between parents and, and Rosie. Yeah. That's what I was trying to say. And I think that comes mostly from the dad, the, the father of the family because he's so cold towards her mom and so cold about her passion and not supporting it all and that's where her mother her mother just gives up and she like that that's the way he is and then he tells her a story do you know why i got married uh married to your father we didn't summarize that part tell us <laughs> Uh, she said, I don't fully remember, but she said it was a beautiful story, like it was from magazine. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, more like a, like a heartbreaking story, not like a like picture-perfect magazine, but like a, a sad story from a magazine. Um, oh, yeah, 1307. Uh, it was a story out of magazines, illustrated in sepia, which she had consumed so greedily for a period until the information had somehow reached her that those wretchedly unhappy autobiographies uh, were largely inventions. Wretchedly unhappy is her mother's story, right? So she, she had a, boy, uh, a boyfriend that she was in love with. Um, they uh, were going to have a child together, but he married someone else. Um, and her child was stillborn. And so her, her reputation is sort of ruined. And the only way she can have a new life is to uh, migrate to the US and marry sight unseen this man she does not know. So, yeah. Rosie, yeah. she was like, oh, I had a brother and she was all surprised about it. Yeah, yeah. 
so my question is, what does this story really explain? How does this explain the family dynamic? Why didn't I let you answer first? And then Annalie, I want you to try. <laughs> How does this explain his coldness maybe? Maybe his coldness came from how she was, she had a child before because in Japanese culture it's very like cultural. And um, I don't think divorce is a common thing in Japanese culture. That's what, from what I heard. I and families really valued everything valued in the families and family is the first priority. priority. I think that was the most thing how they were trying to put on and how the her husband that he was cold to, towards her dad she was in love with someone else and and then she just felt like not trying at all yeah Emily what do you think um maybe it's because like she has her own personal enjoyment and like he feels like he should be a part of that too I wondered about that too, right? Because when she gets excited about haiku, she's talking to other men mostly, right? Some mm -hmm. other women, but a lot of other men too. Do you think he's jealous, Annalie? Yeah, he's probably jealous because like in their, I feel like in people's religion, like they believe certain things and like some men don't want their women talking to other men and everything so yeah I mean and I think you could take that in in any geography in any culture in any any patriarchal shaped uh, world <laughs> that that kind of jealousy might be there and then so with this backstory now we know that she was in love with someone else and that she did not marry him out of love and now she's talking to other people that, I mean, that all makes sense, right? Uh, maybe that explains something. Can we come up with any other alternate theories that explain what's going on here? Is it just two married people or is there something else happening, can you think? I mean, I feel like, what's her name, Rosie? Yes. I feel like she's she was like, I don't know how to explain it. She was born in like a different, you know, like generation and everything yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. So a part of that, she's not like her mom and dad from like, you know, like back in the day, like she wasn't, so like she experiences different things than they did when they were little. Right. It's like, it's hard for her to talk to her parents about it in that because they don't get it. Yeah, and we don't really see her talk to them about anything, right? She's having this uh, kind of romantic moment with Jesus and nobody knows about it. And it, it doesn't seem like she's going to ever confide in them about it. Um, just doesn't seem like a thing they're gonna talk about. Uh, or maybe her parents don't want her to have a book <laughs> anything like that. So imagine. <laughs> Please continue. I'm in a hotel <laughs> with a small dog. <laughs> All 
All right, I think we're back. Housekeeping. Um, okay, great. Yeah, so I was going to ask a little bit more about the haiku part, right? So do you think there's anything about it that's not just that she's talking to other people, but she's having this like very Japanese experience, right? She's writing for a Japanese newspaper in a Japanese art form, talking to their Japanese um, kind of friends while he is doing what? Far like farming, raising tomatoes? Do, do you feel any of that kind of cultural tension between what she's doing and why he might feel so upset about it? I think, yeah, the most part is that he feels lonely that mm. his wife is mostly uh, part of Japanese uh, culture and is most relatable to it right now because she's writing Japanese poems, she's meeting with Japanese people, and she even won a prize at the end. And I think that's the most thing that he, he feels lonely, but he doesn't know how to express it. And he's expressing it was anger because at then when she won the Japanese uh, prize for the poem uh, in the newspaper, she, Mr. Kuroda comes and uh, when she, he tells her the news and she offers him a tea, I think. Yeah. And when he comes in, um Rosie goes tells and her uh, goes tells her dad that he has come and she'll like go call your mom yeah. and uh their mother I mean her mother was okay wait a minute I'll come in a minute and her husband just like asks furious and he's all angry I thought at first I, I thought because he was jealous because he she was with another man yeah but then um his anger just came out of nowhere and he burned the prize so which was really unnecessary i think yeah and let's talk about the prize that's burned for just a second it's a uh, a landscape kind of portrait it's traditional japanese art by a japanese artist and that's what he destroys this is what makes me think it's not just a plain old jealousy of men and women but it has something more to do maybe with what it means to to immigrate to another place and what does it mean to to identify with that other place would you describe the father as as assimilated do you know that word do you like that word as sort of identifying as american or certainly not as much as rosie question mark i don't know tell me what you you're thinking about I, let me ask it another way. Is it possible that he's mad at her for not coming along with him and being more involved in their local life? I feel like that's also part of the problem where maybe uh, her husband is trying to fit in with Rosie and fit in like it was her coming out like more Americanish yeah. and uh, seeing that. Uh, her mother is going back to Japanese all the time and trying to speak to, uh, in Japanese with her, which is like part of a problem. And maybe father is being like, oh, we we're here in America. We have to speak American and we have to learn and we have to adapt to it, you know? Yeah. Annalie, what's your reaction to that idea? Um, I feel as if like since they that you know like rosie and all that are trying to be more american like in her dad but her her mom is like stuck on the japanese culture yeah. so 
the dad is getting mad because like she don't want to she don't it's like she wants to learn something new but she wants to keep her Japanese culture her main culture yeah and I think there's a lot of ways to read that as admirable right and it kind of depends on when and where so this story is published in 1949 um and do you remember the story of of Japanese internment during World War II her family was was in prison camps in on U.S. soil during World War II. Um, I think the story is set a little earlier than that. There's a little bit of evidence that maybe it's from maybe 1935, 1936 as the setting of this story, but the, it's not easy to be Japanese American um, in the 30s and 40s, right? Particularly someone who has lived in internment within the United States. It is hard to look at that and say, oh, America's a wonderful place I wanna be a part of. Uh, I feel like that would be a real challenge. So, so the story of, a, a, of a, a couple of the same generation who are not having the same experience of what it means to, to be an immigrant person, and then their child having a third experience, um, kind of all three of those are happening in one story. And Oden, I think your word disconnect uh, that's a good one. They're disconnected from each other, perhaps because of their very different uh, futures, I guess, how they want to look at the future and what they imagine their future life to be. Is there anything else you want to say about that, that connection or that story before we go to the other one? How, I feel like I, I accidentally cut out a lot of Asian American writers. There were many others <laughs> that I have had on the syllabus in the past. Um, but the, the headnote does mention that she's one of the first to really represent Japanese American writing uh, in the kind of post-World War II era. Uh, so I think that's worth friend, finding out more about. Cool. All right, well, let's go on to Cisneros' story, Americans. And Annalie, you had questions about this one, so I'll let you give us the summary. All right, well, it's like this, these two, well, like these kids, they're outside of this church and they're waiting for their grandma. The and their grandma doesn't grandmother. <laughs> the awful grandmother. Yes, yes. And the grandma don't want them to come in because, you know, adults have their own things to do and they want the kids to go play. <laughs> but like, she finds herself, she doesn't want to play with her brother. Like she thinks it's boring, but then she starts playing with his, her, her brother. And she, she finds out that like, she's doing everything her brother says. Right. So she um she finds herself stuck doing everything her brother does and then she caught she she's like caught between two mindsets like people telling her what to do and then people not like people not accepting her for her mm -hmm. so it's like sexism and you know yeah so, i mean that's the summary i have Okay, cool. Talk to me about the, the title of the story. What's the event that caused them to say uh, we're Americans? What happens at the end? Like Americans come over and they like start playing where they're playing. So then that's 
that's how Americans like she thinks that she's an American too. Yeah, and the the tourists, these people who are very obviously tourists, uh, give them gum and like want to talk to them, and then find out yeah. that they speak English. Yeah, yeah. Well, good, good. I think you got it. And it does resonate a lot with what we learned in the um, in the headnote about about Sandra Cisneros's own experience um, that she and her siblings. She was one girl and six brothers. Uh, grew up mostly in the U.S., but did a lot of back and forth across the border um, with Mexico. And so that kind of sounded like the character in this story, right? Lots of brothers back and forth. Um, but then there's this very specific moment of being outside the church. Um, so yeah, Annalie, what do you think the theme of the story is? That's your question. I mean, I would say like, I was thinking like social displacement. Whoa, keep going. Say more about that. Because um, the children find themselves stuck in between the Mexican and the American culture. Yeah, and how interesting that the Mexican culture is represented by the church. Yes. And the awful grandmother. And then the American culture is represented by who and what? What, what would you say represents feel, that other culture? Um, like them being outside, like outside the church. And then like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if it would be like the, the people coming to them and like, you know. Yeah, those very clearly white looking people, right? They're yeah. dressed wrong. Um, they stick out, they're very different. Uh, Oyden, do you have an idea about this? What might represent kind of the Americanness of the story? I would say that someone's her social displacement, displacement but also um, when people judge someone, but they don't know actually about them because uh, when, I forgot the little girl's name. Uh, Michaela or Michelle. Michaela, right. And she was playing with her uh, with her brothers, right? And then she didn't want to be judged and be like, oh my gosh, you're a girl, you can't play with us. So she kept playing. And then the moment when they want to play mud people, sorry, there's nothing back. <laughs> nothing you can do on the floor. <laughs> and when we're playing mud people, she almost cried because she didn't want to look weak in, in front of her brothers. And she didn't want to like, give up. And also at the point where the tourists came up to her, to them, and asked, and they were like, oh my gosh, you guys speak American. And they were like, yeah, we're Americans. Yeah, it reminded me of that thing you said right at the beginning of you can be kind of culturally in whatever culture you can blend in with, but there's always this like appearance that people will prejudge right before they know anything else about you. And that seems to be, you know, what's happening there. I think you all are so very smart that like, there's something about being on the doorstep of the church, which is not in the church, but they're also not allowed to go into the community around the church. They're very much in a liminal space, right? A threshold and only the, the, the narrator can move in those spaces, right? She can go in the church, she comes out of the church, she can talk to these people, she can move in and out. Um, I was also gonna point to the mud people as maybe one of those American examples, right? They have a lot of pop culture knowledge. 
they know about um, the Germans. <laughs> and what is the, what the oh, I'm a, a B-52 bomber and you're a German. So they're, they're pretending to be American fighter pilots. And then they have, you know, against the Germans and then they're Flash Gordon and they're uh, Ming the Merciless and the Mud People, which is something about comedy comic strips that I don't know about. They have American names, right? Did you catch that? That they kind of have two different names. There's the names they use for each other, uh, Michelle, Keeks and Junior. And then the grandmother calls them by their Spanish names, Michaela, Enrique and Alfredito. Uh, Kike is another short version of Enrique and that's where Keeks comes from. Uh, tell me, what else do you think about that kind of in-betweenness of these characters? Is it uncomfortable for them? Is it natural for them? How do you feel about their identities? Do they, do they seem to be in crisis or anything, Emily? I mean, I feel like Michelle or Michaela or however you say it, yeah. she feels like she has to pick one side. Like, she, I feel like she has... Like it's either she goes with them, like goes do what her grandma does or just be a whole American. Right, right. Well, and she's also, as you mentioned, like outside of her brothers too. So she's, she's outside of her grandmother. She's outside from her brother. She's outside from these other people. She's kind of like not a part of any of those groups. Um, and I absolutely want to talk more about gender, Annalie, because that was your other question. <laughs> but, but I think there, it's a combination of age, uh, of gender, and of national identity now that kind of makes them feel uh, kind of separated. Oiden, do you want to say anything else about that, about kind of where they, how they might feel about these identities? Um, I think Michaela or Michelle, uh, she's feeling very... Uh, pressured and like about a bit sacri sacrificing of her identity mm -hmm. because when they play and she does not only have to confirm confirm uh, i don't know how to say the word Inform. confirm them confirm them yeah and let them be the heroes always be the heroes mm -hmm. and then her being left out whatever the character they choose for her even though she's a girl Right. And it sounds too, tell me about the awful grandmother. So the awful grandmother is in the church and she's praying for everyone. And basically, it, I, I don't know, you tell me, <laughs> what, what are her prayers like? How do you feel about this awful grandmother? Is she as awful as uh, the narrator suggests? Uh, I mean, I think she's just a strict grandma. Yeah. Oh wants to keep their uh, grandchildren grandchildren's in safe place and pray for them because she's praying for her um for her family yeah. and then she's praying for uncle i think about the worm being safe being There's many things that she's praying for right she's praying for the aunt who uh who is like a like parties at night um, she prays for Uncle Fat Face. I don't know why, or Uncle Baby. Um, all the people that she's praying for are people who don't want to be in church. So she kind of has, uh, I mean, maybe we could put it this way as having this, this spiritual burden for the whole family. If she's like what womanhood is, if it's like Mexican womanhood, is it something that the narrator would ever want? Is there anything good about being an awful grandmother. <laughs> what do you think it would I mean, mean? 
Go ahead, Oiden. I mean, peace. She knows that her grandkids are in safe place and that they're going to grow up being yeah. in the right place. She's a powerful figure. She she has God's ear. That's a powerful place to be, maybe. Uh, Annalie, what do you think about this grandmother character? I mean, I feel like her heart's in the right place and everything, yeah. but like she doesn't know she doesn't know what her grandkids want because she's focused on what she wants. Oh, what she wants her grandkids to be. Mm, that's a good point and what everybody else in the family needs to be yeah yeah she's praying for them because she doesn't like she does she doesn't want nothing bad to happen to them but like like kids think differently like everybody doesn't have to grow up to be to do the same thing so like they don't like want to pursue what she's doing Got it. So going in the church and staying with the grandmother would sort of symbolize accepting the grandmother's plan for her. Yeah, and kind of uh, conforming, to use Oiden's word, right? Conforming to all those expectations. Um, Okay, I like it. And what if she played with the boys? What if she stayed with them? She would have to conform to their expectations then, huh? It's like they're not conforming to hers. No one's conforming to hers, are they? What even are her expectations? Do we know? No. Just not this. Not this and not that. (laughs) Some other undiscovered thing, maybe. Hmm. Also, when they're at the church, uh, when Grandma was praying and when Michaela decided to go back in after playing with her brother's she said, uh, her grandma said something to her and she replied, it was what? And then her grandma heard something else. And then she kind of pushed her away, was, was a bit cold towards her. Right. Right. I think that's another moment, just like in the last story, there's that language barrier. There's that ability to hear and understand each other. Um, and it seems to be another case where uh, it's not just translation issues, Maybe, but also generational issues, uh, geographic issues that make it hard for them to understand each other. Um, it seems pretty clear that all of the grandmother's children, adult children, are also not quite with her either, right? Yeah, okay, okay. All right, um, tell me about these other people, these tourist people. Is there any way she wants to belong with them? I mean, I feel at the end, like at the end of the the story, like like she like doesn't know if she wants to be claimed as what is she again? Well, I don't know. They would be they, <laughs> that's a good question. I would call them Mexican American. Okay. Uh, like, yeah. She don't know if she's going to be like full Mexican or full American. Like she don't want to claim her identity yet. Yeah. I mean, it ends by saying, uh, hey, <laughs> I love this part. So first of all, let's just sort of like set the scene, right? So we have these, uh, they have to be white people. There's no way that they're not. Uh, a dude wearing shorts uh, and a lady dressed in pants and um, speaking Spanish 
in it says the lady asks in Spanish too big for her mouth like it's just she's not doing it right <laughs> it doesn't sound right coming out of her mouth and she wants to take his picture um what do you think she's what did, why does she want to take his picture maybe because like they look different yeah like you know they're like fate their face and everything looks different from like an American you know she thinks she's getting like an authentic Mexican experience yeah it's like yeah it's like this is the first time she ever met somebody that looked like this yeah yeah and then to find out that he's speaks English hey Michelle hey Keeks you guys want gum <laughs> and uh turns out yeah we're Americans we're Americans, we're Americans. We don't get to see the lady's reaction, but what do you think their reaction is? How can you imagine those tourists reacting to hearing that come out of his mouth? Um, obviously they were a bit shocked, of course, because yeah. everyone would. And they were trying, to, trying their hardest to speak Spanish and yeah. the kids even noticed and they're like, they they noticed that their Spanish was was at the least right, right. And then in the beginning, where she talks about the clothes, Kayla, she talks how the lady wouldn't wear pants and how the men shouldn't wear shorts to the church. So they noticed that they're not local, right? And then uh, uh, towards a bit to the end, she says she talks about the lady. She she says she's so busy talking to Junior's picture. She doesn't notice me and kicks. Yeah. And I think this, like, that's the whole point of the story that um, Kayla just leaves out being on attention, leaves out being the last and yeah. least. Unnoticed. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. When I noticed too that she doesn't say, she doesn't, I don't know if she agrees with him. Right, he says, yeah, we're Americans. We're Americans, we're Americans. And inside the awful grandmother prays. Uh, that last line kind of puts, repeating it, we're Americans, we're Americans. I wonder, I don't know. How do you feel like she feels at the end? Is she still standing on the threshold between these two places? Has she come to any conclusion? How do you read that last line, I guess? Um, I think she just accepts her her identity. Yeah. Which, so, which identity? Or just her uh, identity as being in between? Being in between that yeah. she's saying that, oh yeah, see, I can understand too, but I have connection with my grandma who's in church and who's doing cultural thing, praying, right? Yeah. So I think she, men she mentions that she's also American, but her grandma is there, you know? Yeah, Emily, what do you think about the end? I mean, I feel like she's in between, but I feel like her brother gets seen more because he's a male. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, like, mm -hmm. I guess he's more confident in everything. Mm. And she's like laid back because she still doesn't know, but she's in between of Mexican and American. Yeah, he's also older, he's older, he's male. He, he is red. I think that's a good point, Annalie. I hadn't quite thought about that, but uh, when those people walk up with the camera, they know how to categorize him, right? 
Uh, and so they react to him in a certain way and he can say back to them, oh, I know who we are, we're Americans, right? He's not in conflict about where he is and what, what his identity is going to be. It really is kind of only her who's having that experience. Yeah. Did we say enough about gender, Annalie? What, do you, what else do you want to talk about between those brother-sister things or things about the grandma? I feel that, like, like she's explaining it from her point of view because, like, she's the narrator or whatever. Right. But she's struggling with her heritage and understanding the, like, understanding what her grandma does, you know? Yeah, I think it's important, Annalie, that it's not just gender that she's talking about, but it's like gender within a national context. Uh, there's American gender and there's Mexican gender. And I think she's gonna have to navigate those tensions. There's also like older, when uh, older gender and younger gender. And I, I think there's a lot of those uh, distinctions that she's kind of navigating all at once. Um, what do you know about the Virgin of Guadalupe? I don't know a lot either, but I, I think that's a really interesting uh, choice to kind of focus on her. So it's the um, a presentation of the Virgin Mary that's specifically related to Mexico, right? So um, the Virgin Mary appears in Mexico to um, a person who later becomes a saint, I think. I'm not very good. Read the footnote. Uh, <laughs> but there's another version of femininity. So we have the awful grandmother, we have the Virgin of Guadalupe, and then we have this young girl. And, you know, these are kind of the powerful women that she can, you know, look up to and experience. Uh, and even Jesus is to the side of the Virgin Guadalupe. Did you notice that part um, on 1548? Uh, the Virgen de Guadalupe is waiting inside behind a plate of thick glass. There's also a gold crucifix, Brent crooked as a mesquite tree when someone once threw a bomb. La Virgin uh, on the main altar because she's a big mural. Miracle, the crooked crucifix on the side altar because that's a little miracle. So she's, she's bigger than Jesus, right? She's larger, she's the center. So tell me what you think that means in terms of gender. <laughs> <laughs> what, how might that set something up to have that virgin character at the center? And Jesus off to the side. Any thoughts? I mean, maybe they go to like the Virgin of Guadalupe for everything like they did. I don't, I don't know. Like, <laughs> That's a hard question. <laughs> yeah, for me, here's what I'm thinking, that it does set up, there is a, a version of femininity that is powerful, right? Powerful, but, but controlled. And I think the awful grandmother kind of represents that too, right? Where she, she has a lot of responsibility, she has a lot of power, um, but she's also using it maybe in some slightly judgmental ways right, to kind of control others. So that's a tough one. Okay, cool. All right, well, we're about out of time. Uh, do you have anything you want people to read or listen to related to these stories? Did they make you think of anything? The House on Mango Street, the one that you have down, I love that book. We read it in like the ninth grade. Yes, Sandra Sandra. same author. Didn't know that, I wasn't thinking. Uh -huh. 
So tell us about it. What, a, what about House on Mango Street did you enjoy or that kind of resonates? Did you see any connections to what we're talking about here? I haven't read it since I was in eighth grade, so I kind of forget about it. <laughs> but you remember liking it? Yes, I remember, yeah. I don't know. It was just, it like, in school, the books that we read were like dumb, you know, like, and I didn't feel like reading it. Like, it didn't catch my, like, I have to read books that, you know, have my attention and everything. Yeah. And this one, I don't know. Something about it, I don't know. Yeah. There's one story in particular that I remember that's about um, high-heeled shoes. Does it sound familiar? Where she wears these, she gets these shoes and she wears these womanly shoes um, around and they kind of draw the wrong kind of attention. And it reminded me a little bit of these same questions about gender here that are happening in this story where there's a, um, a desire to be feminine and to perform femininity. But then when you do that, you kind of become a, open to violence perhaps and it's kind of dangerous to be too womanly too soon um so i just wondered if there was anything about that that might resonate yeah i feel about the outsiders the way you feel about house on mango street like the outsiders that was the book for me of like everything else we read was dumb until the outsiders <laughs> boyden do you have any recommendations um, I would recommend to read Honey, Milk and Honey. It's a book. Um, Rupi Kapoor. Yes, Rupi Kapoor. It's short. Uh, there's like short poems by different authors, and it's. I think it's really great to read. The trio. Yes, she has a newer book um, that I don't remember what it's called, uh, but it came out early in the fall. So very exciting. Well, thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for your excellent participation. Uh, you had the podcast together last time that I was in a hotel room in Mount Lebanon, uh, Tennessee. So it's been very exciting to be with you again. Thank you everyone for listening and have a good day.